0: Well, it's it's about that time. We'll go ahead and get started. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter sixteen tonight. I think we left off at the bottom of page 64, if that sounds right to everybody else. I had a little mark there right before letter G in the notes. And there's a new handout in the back. We might not get through all of it. We're still catching up a little bit from our snow day, but we'll come close tonight. So Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 is where we're picking up and in our notes it's at the bottom of page 64 letter g good to see everybody here tonight a little warmer today it felt good outside didn't it it's a nice day all right well let's uh let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll we'll dive in father we're thankful that you provided this place this opportunity the great freedoms all the resources uh, the ability to study your word, and we're most most thankful that you have revealed yourself through your Son, that you've spoken to us, and I pray that we'd think clearly tonight so that we can honor him, and we'd listen carefully to what he has to say. And we ask for the Spirit's help in Christ's name, amen. All right, so at the bottom of that page there, we're getting towards the end of this section that went between... Uh, the third and the fourth discourse. Jesus now here uh, clearly indicates that he's going to go to the cross, and on the third day, he's going to rise. This is what he says there, or what Matthew says about him. Chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This this is a pretty significant shift in Matthew's story. Um, We've had some hints along the way, especially if we already knew how the story ends. Of what Jesus was going to do in order to save his people from their sins. But now he's explicitly coming right out and telling his disciples that he is going to die and then he's going to rise. And it's a parallel statement to something that happened earlier. So, just to remind ourselves of the kind of the big picture of where we're going, Matthew's gospel is arranged around five key discourses with, I think, the central one being the main focus in the middle. So that's, I think, one way that Matthew wants you to divide up his gospel and think about the structure. But he has another marker here that seems to be fairly significant. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, right before uh, Jesus starts preaching his own ministry, after John the Baptist has been arrested... There's that little phrase, from that time on. And then it introduces Jesus' preaching ministry. And now in that verse that I just read, towards the end of chapter 16, you have that same phrase repeated again. So some people think that you should divide Matthew into a two-part structure with that phrase. And it does seem to me important that he repeats that same phrase at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then when Jesus' ministry takes a shift and he heads towards the cross. I still think the five discourses is the main way you're supposed to divide the gospel, but I think you can overlay the two and you can kind of see better what Matthew is doing. But Jesus makes it clear that even though he is gonna go to the cross, he's going to be resurrected his followers need to take up their cross and follow after Him. We've already talked about that phrase because he, he used it earlier when we were back in chapter 10. But He's also clear that He's still going to come in power to set up or inaugurate His kingdom. So that leads into the next section, page 65, this third set of three miracles. So remember, if we... If we zoom in on all of the stories between the third discourse and the fourth discourse, it seems to be arranged deliberately by Matthew into three sets of three. He likes threes. We saw that all through his gospel, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we've come to the last three. I know that's a little hard to read. It's small print, but it's the transfiguration, and then we have the story of Jesus healing a demoniac, and then Jesus providing money in a very spectacular way to pay his own temple tax. So let's walk through those three and try to see what they all have in common. So the first one here, Jesus is transfigured on a mountain. I say there are point eight, One of the first things that I think we're supposed to notice is that when Matthew tells his account of Jesus's transfiguration, it contains multiple connections with Moses. So... We haven't talked about this for a while because Matthew hasn't been doing it as much for a while. Actually, last week's lesson, the stories that we looked at, had more to do with Jesus' salvation of of Gentile people. The Canaanite woman, the 4,000 who are fed, the people who are healed at Gennesaret. But now Matthew returns to one of his big themes, that Jesus is the prophet like Moses who was promised in Deuteronomy. He is the, the person who's going to save the people of Israel from, out, from under the covenant curses. And he do, does that by making these connections with Moses. So first of all, it says there that Jesus ascends on a high mountain. So let's look at verse 1 again. And I just want to look at the context. So let's look at the last verse of chapter 16. And then let's look at verse 1 side by side. Remember when Matthew's writing he doesn't put in chapter or verse divisions. He doesn't even put spaces between words. It's just one letter right after another. So we're the ones who have arranged it that way just to make it easier for ourselves to find verses and read. Can you imagine doing a sword drill without chapters and verses? I'm not sure how that would exactly work. So if you read just the end of verse or the end of chapter 16, It's a little bit of a cryptic saying. It's a common question that Christians or sometimes even skeptics ask. You know, what does Jesus mean by this? He says, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. At first glance, that might sound like Jesus is saying, I'm going to return from heaven and set up my kingdom before some of you men die. I mean, that's at first glance what it looks like. But then if you just keep reading the next sentence, it says after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So this is, this is soon after. It's six days. Matthew doesn't normally put things in chronological order, so this is significant. And it is some of them, right? Some of them who were standing there, Peter, James, and John, are taken up on a mountain, and they are given a preview of what the son of man will look like when he comes in a kingdom so it's a common interpretation i think it's the right interpretation that jesus's statement at the end of chapter 16 is fulfilled six days later when he takes his three disciples up on the mountain and he gives them this vision so first it's a high mountain i think that by itself starts you thinking about moses second that reference to six days there reminds the reader of when Moses waited six days on Mount Sinai. Third, Moses also went up on Mount Sinai with three men. And there's the names of them there from Exodus 24. Fourth, this is probably the, the most clear one, but Moses and Jesus are both said to have a face that shone like the sun. So was, we know that this was a common story that they would retell based on Exodus that when Moses went up on the mountain, his face shone. Even the Apostle Paul refers to that in 2 Corinthians because it was a common story that was told about Moses. Fifth, there's a voice from heaven that says about the Son, you need to listen to him. And remember, the prophet, like Moses, was supposed to be listened to. And then finally, we have these references that connect it back with the story that we saw earlier. Got a little bit of a typo there in the middle of that paragraph. It says, in addition, and then it says, furthermore. I think I only need one of those words. So you can choose which one you want to cross out. I'll let you decide, but I don't need both of them, all right? little typo there. I think, finally, the presence of Elijah. So you remember when, after Jesus has gone up there, his appearance changes, he shines, the Father speaks from heaven, making it very clear that this is... His obedient chosen son, that we need to listen to him. Uh, The prophets or the disciples who are there, they immediately ask about Elijah. So they're also picking up on these clues. They understand that this is all about the restoration of Israel. And Malachi, the very end of our Old Testament, the very last verse, predicts that Elijah someday will come at the time of the day of the Lord. So this is. Malachi 4.1, just to remind us of the verse. So very last uh, couple verses. Actually, I think that's supposed to be Malachi 5 through 6, not Malachi 4.1. But the prophet says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction you see that or else there there's there's two options the prophecy says elijah will come and the people will respond one or two ways either they'll respond in repentance and that repentance will come from a new heart that looks like healed interpersonal relationships or else if that's not the respond then god will come and he will strike the land with total destruction So if a John comes as Elijah in Elijah's role, or as the Gospels say, in the spirit and power of Elijah, which response did he get? He got the last one, right? The people of Israel are not repenting. You're not seeing the restored interpersonal relationships. Jesus' own close family members don't even recognize who he is. And so I think the land does get struck with a curse. There is more judgment coming And this still opens the question then about, will there be another Elijah coming? So let's turn to page 66. Let me just read a little bit, starting there with point C. So putting all these, these points together from the Old Testament, all of these connections with Moses, with Elijah, I say, therefore, without being the restored kingdom itself, The transfiguration is a dramatic preview of the glory that Jesus, the already present king, will have in that kingdom. It's a foretaste of what his disciples will see after a life of carrying a cross behind their master. Remember, he's just said, I'm going to die, and you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow after me. Right? There's going to be a long period of time before the kingdom comes in power. and we're rescued from the effects of the curse and sin. But, just so you can hold on to me, just so you can keep trusting me, I'm going to give you a little sneak preview of what's in store. I'm going to let you see me the way Isaiah saw me on his throne, right, high and lifted up. You're going to see me like, in some degree, Moses saw me in the burning bush. right? The Son of God who had appeared all through the Old Testament to certain prophets and and people is now here in the person of Jesus, but he's, he's veiled in a sense, right? He's veiled in his humanity, but for a second the humanity gets pulled back and we see him in his glory so that we can hold on to him and wait for him to come back. Keener says in his commentary, Had the disciples any doubt that Jesus would someday come to reign in glory, and you could see why they might doubt that, right? He promises them a proleptic vision of his glory in the present. All right, well, that all, I think, makes sense, right? But it still raises a difficult question. Well, what about the promised coming of Elijah? This is a question that sometimes you get. Will there be another Elijah coming? I say it's a difficult question. That means I don't really want to answer it, but I'll, I'll give it a stab anyway, right? Turner, in his commentary, he believes that the language at least allows for a future coming of Elijah. And he notes the possibility that the Elijah, John, Jesus typology may only be complete with a future restoring Elijah. So if John came first as the forerunner of Jesus, but the Jesus, and then in that part of his ministry, if it was the suffering Jesus, the Jesus who dies, and then is resurrected and ascended. If Jesus has a second coming, where he's the victorious, triumphant Jesus, then Turner's saying it makes sense that there would be another Elijah role, that he also would have another messenger in front of him. I give you a longer explanation there, just straight out of my teacher's notes, Dr. Compton's notes, but right in the middle of the, well, not really the middle, the first sentence of that last paragraph, I put, I'm in brackets. I added compare 2 Kings 2:15. Does everybody see that? It'd be a verse to go look up. It's a verse where uh, after Elijah is off the scene, it's said of Elisha that he comes. Essentially, the language is with spirit and the power of Elijah. So I think that's the role that John plays. John is very clear. I'm not Elijah, but I'm very Elijah-like, right? And I have Elijah's abilities. I'm carrying out Elijah's role. But I still think that leaves open a window for another Elijah prophet, either Elijah himself or someone like Elijah, who would show up at the day of the Lord before Jesus' second coming. All right, that's the first of these three little miracles, all right? I'll go a little further, then I'll break for questions, okay? So meanwhile, while Jesus has been up there on the mountain with the handpicked three, seeing this glorious preview of his kingdom, Matthew tells us what's been going on down below. So verses 14 through 23, Jesus and the three come back, and they find out here that uh, the disciples have been trying to cast out a demon and have not been able to. So let's go to chapter 17, and verse. I'll just read a couple verses starting in verse 14. It says when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and he knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And then we find out a little later in the story that the cause of his seizures and the suffering that he's going through is, is actually demonic. We, don't, we can't say that every time a person has seizures, it's demonic. I, I wouldn't say that. But in this particular instance, the Bible tells us that that's what's happening. He has something that looks like seizures, but it's brought on by a demon. Uh, first of all, chapter 10 of Matthew, the disciples had been given the power over demons, right? They had been sent out. So this is something that they were told by Jesus that they could do. I also have to think that they would have tried really hard, you know, You imagine you're standing up in front of a crowd of people and you're trying to do something. I think they gave it a go. Like, I think they gave it their best effort. But despite their efforts, they weren't able to do it. It would have been uh, probably a horribly embarrassing situation, a, a tense situation. And then finally, the Lord shows up, and what he says there is striking. In verse 17, he says, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? So skipping down now to the, the bottom of page 66, I say the transfiguration account is followed directly in Matthew by another account in which Jesus describes unbelieving Israelites as a generation or evil family. So remember I've I've argued at several points that I think the word translated generation in our English Bibles would be better translation at translated as family or a group of children, or something to that effect. And it's a pejorative term. It's not something that you want to be called. If you get called this generation in the Gospels, it's a bad thing. So then the question is, who's being called that? Is it the Father? Is it the crowd? Or is it the disciples? That's the question. So turning the page there, I think it is um, actually the disciples. It's the Father who approaches and asks for mercy. The crowd actually is kind of in the background. They're not the main focus. This is one way when you compare the synoptics with each other, you can see that Matthew seems to have deliberately made the crowd recede further into the background, as opposed to, for example, Mark, where they're more prominent. When, When Jesus says, you there in verse 17... How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? That's a plural you. So remember in Matthew's language that he's using, he has a plural you, just like Spanish or other languages have a plural you. We don't have one in English. We just have y'all if we want to. But this is a you that's plural. So it's not, he's not talking to the father. So the crowd is in the background. I don't think he's talking to them. If If he was referring to the father, it would have to be a singular you. Since it's a plural you, he's actually referring to the disciples. He's actually sternly um, scolding, maybe be the right word, scolding these disciples for their inability to perform this. So, I'm going to go to the middle there of uh, that paragraph C. It says, despite being given the authority to perform signs and wonders... The disciples are reminded in the context that their power is derivative and only comes in response to prayer to God, evidently a truth that they had forgotten or neglected. This is a little bit of an inference, but I I think it's accurate. You have to remind yourself or think through what particular thing might Jesus be upset with them. And in one of the parallel passages, prayer is specifically referred to Verses uh, 20 and 21 both refer to faith. I think here what's happening is the disciples have started to approach their ministry in an automatic fashion, just assuming that they can do things. So how would this apply to us? We've never been asked by God to cast out demons, right? But there are specific things that we've been told our master wants us to do. And you could just get in the habit of trying to do those, and it just becomes automatic to you. And you forget the important truth that you and I will never be able to do anything of lasting, eternal value in this world except for with God's power, right? Except for as Christ's messengers, all right? So I think two parallel things are happening. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he's going to be going away. Two potential things that you and I as disciples could need reminded of while he's gone. One, he really is who he claimed to be. And he really will someday come in power. Someday everyone will see him the way those disciples saw him on the mountain. And two, while he's gone and you and I are busy doing stuff, we always have to remember that we're using derived power, delegated power, Our power will always come from someone else. And we express that when we pray, when we ask God to do things, when we ask God to give his strength. So at the bottom of paragraph D, I say, while Jesus is physically absent from his followers, they will need to remember the preview that he gave of his coming glory. And, this is the second story, remember that they will still need his power and authority to accomplish His All right, one more little story here for this section. This one's an interesting one. This is one of my favorite ones to preach and teach, so I have to be careful not to get long-winded, but it's the story of the coin and the fish. Isn't that an interesting story? What's going on with the coin and the fish? Well, it starts out in verse 24, where you have a tax collector coming. He asks Peter whether his master will pay this two drachma temple tax. This is very likely, I'm I'm pretty certain, the tax that was paid by all Jewish men between 20 and 50 to support the temple. So it was loosely based on the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law originally had a tax in order to raise money for the tabernacle. Then in the days of Nehemiah, they again used this tax to raise money for the temple but like all good taxes once they're in place they never go away right that was the problem so it's like a poll you know or a, a toll they say the toll is for a, a certain construction project but then the toll stays forever so even though this wasn't something required by the law which i think is key to the story it's not required by the law it's something that almost all jewish men would have done out of a sense of obligation well the man makes the wrong assumption about jesus He just thinks he's a regular man. He's just a regular Jewish man between 20 and 50. So when he asks this question, it's a question in verse 24 that assumes an affirmative response. You know how you can ask a question that you expect a yes to or you can ask a question that you expect a no to? This is the yes kind of question. And I think it could be paraphrased just to bring out the sense of it, this was suggested to me by one of my professors one day, your teacher is just an ordinary tax-paying guy, isn't he? That's the sense of it. And I think that that holds because of the structure in Matthew. So I've showed you this slide a few times. This, is, this will be the last time I show you. But just remember where we've been over the last few weeks. We started back in chapter 12, verse 49, right before the middle discourse where he's in his hometown and the people that know him just say, isn't this the carpenter's son, right? Isn't this the carpenter's son? What are they saying? They're demeaning him. He's just an ordinary guy. There's nothing special about him. And now parallel with that, at the end of this section, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? It's the same kind of statement. There's nothing special about him. He's just a normal tax-paying Joe. He'll he'll pay it just like everyone else. And Peter, I think just quickly, as Peter is prone to do, just says, yeah, yeah, I think he'll pay it. And then when he goes back inside, what does Jesus tell him? Jesus asks him him this question about who do the kings of this earth pay taxes for? Uh, They don't collect it from their own family members. They certainly don't pay it themselves they always collect it from others Jesus makes the point I think the point the first point is very clear that he's actually exempt because he is the king or he's at least the son of the king all right he shouldn't have to pay for his own temple I'm assuming that today in Russia that Putin doesn't pay taxes that Putin's family doesn't pay taxes all right and here in our country we want all of our politicians and leaders to pay taxes but that's a very new concept in world history, right? In most of the world, certainly in the world that Jesus lives in, kings don't pay taxes and their family members don't pay taxes. So he he is gently scolding or reminding Peter that he's not just a normal tax-paying guy. He's the king. He's the son of the king. And he not only says, but in order to avoid offense, you can go out and find this fish, and I'll just happen to have a fish ready that'll have a coin in there, but the coin is going to be enough to pay both his tax and Peter's tax. And I think the point there is that Peter is also part of the royal family. This is a great truth that we could spend a lot of time on. It's, it's, it's one thing that Jesus is part of the royal family, and he's exempt, but remember how this section started. He thinks of you as his family members if you're his follower. You also are exempt. Isn't that a great truth to hold on to along with the other two truths? Is that while you and I live in this difficult in-between time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, you're part of the royal family. Those people in Britain have nothing on us. We have a great privilege, a great privilege. We don't look like that, right? But we, that's who we truly are. And sometimes we have to re- be reminded of how great our king is and how easy it is for him to provide for us. Out of all of the fish in the Sea of Galilee, there was one that had a coin in its mouth and it was available for Peter to go and catch. All right, I'll stop there. Any, any questions over chapter 17? Just on the, on the you yep. 17,
1: Yeah,
0: so it's pretty common for people who take a, a futurist view of Revelation who believe it's mostly about the future, which is how I would take it. Uh, it's common for them to say that those two men appear to be Moses and Elijah. They at least do the things that Al- Moses and Elijah were known for. So could God raise up another prophet who's Elijah-like, like he did with John? He could do that. Or could he send back Elijah? He could do that too. So I'm not sure which, but I think both are possibilities. Yep. Yes? So going back to um, was it, page 66, yes. the restored kingdom is that the millennial kingdom or is that after the millennial yeah so I take the kingdom to be both so there's a a thousand year phase that we call the millennial kingdom and then that kingdom will have the unbelievers separated out from it Uh, Satan says it will be released for a small time and there will be some kind of rebellion that God crushes and then we'll go into what we call the eternal state but that whole package together, in a sense, is one kingdom. Because if you look at the prophecies that were given about the the king that would come from the line of David, he would rule forever. He wouldn't just rule for a thousand years, but that he would rule forever. So I like to think of it as one kingdom with two phases, a thousand years and then the eternal state. So then why restored? Why do I say restored? Because in a sense especially that first 1,000-year period, will be a restoration of what the people of Israel had in the Old Testament. So that's what you
1: meant, the bottom of 66, a preview of the restoration. Yeah. So that's that restoration.
0: Mm-hmm. In, in that restoration of Israel, um, even though there seems to be, there, there must be some kind of change between the first 1,000 years and the last because during the first 1,000 years, there will be unbelievers. There has to be somebody who's a part of that rebellion, right? So because of that, I'm comfortable with there being a temple and other things in place because of the presence of unbelievers. All of that will be removed in the eternal state. But the people of Israel will still be restored. They'll just be one of all of the nations that are restored. Still with a prominent place, it's still a new Jerusalem. It's not a new you know Boston or New Washington. It's a new Jerusalem. It's still a Davidic king who's on the throne. So it's still a fulfillment of the promises to Israel, uh, but it's also including all of us who are Gentiles, which is a big theme for Matthew. I always find that interesting, right? I mean, I think a lot of us are drawn to Matthew because of all the Old Testament connections. And it's clearly uh, has a Jewish orientation. But also, at the same time, he, he goes to great lengths to, to talk about Gentiles and how we'll also be included in this restored kingdom. Yes?
1: One of the covenant promises to Israel, are there, is their land? Right? hmm So that's an important
0: part. Yep. They to them. I do think so, yes. But also, I mean, just to take the other side of it, it's also said that the defeated king will rule from one horizon to the other or from sea to sea. So it's a, it's a restored promised land, for sure, but then it's also the whole globe. So essentially, Jesus will rule. So um, I don't have this in my notes because this is kind of just my own thinking, but um, I wonder if one way to think of it is kind of, this is an analogy, it's not perfect, but do you remember how the British Empire used to be? There used to be Britain, the one island, the one people group. They said that the sun never set on the British empire, right? There were Kenyans, there were Indians, there were people in the Caribbean. There were people here in the Americas. There were all kinds of ethnic groups, people who spoke different languages, who had their own national identities, right, who would think of themselves as being one country, but they were all under the British flag and they all had one monarch. Maybe that's an imperfect analogy, but that helps me think about what the future kingdom will be. It's, it's going to be Jesus ruling over the whole world, but it seems that God still likes diversity. So we're not just all going to be one homogenous blob. We're still going to have, it says in the book of Revelation, kings of the earth who come up to Jerusalem to worship. So I think there will still be a diversity to it underneath the rule of Jesus. Yes?
1: Right, but have you ever thought that 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 complaint that Jesus gave to the disciples was rather harsh?
0: It was. So that makes me think that whatever they were doing, it was a serious offense. Because Matthew's used this generation language enough that you know this is a bad thing to be called that. And so that drives me to think, okay, what would they have been doing that would have been so bad. We know that it has something to do with faith, because in Matthew it's followed up by that statement of, you know, it's not about how much, you fa- how much faith you have, it's about your object. So I think that's the whole point of those verses. You, you know, sometimes you just think, oh, I need to increase my faith, or I need to have more faith. Jesus says, no, having faith the size of a mustard seed is enough. It's not about more faith, it's about who you have faith in. It's about the object of it. And then the other thing, you know, we don't just have Matthew, we have Mark, and we have Luke. We have parallels. And when we go to the parallels, we see that it also is an issue of prayer. And so I think, you think about faith and prayer together, I think it's a dependency on God. You know, what are we doing when we pray? Well, part of it is acknowledging that we need God to do things that we can't do. That we can't always provide our own daily bread that we can't have our own sins forgiven, uh, that we can't just go through life in our own power, but that we need God through the Spirit to enable us. So I think because they had forgotten that important lesson, they got a very strong reprimand from their master. And then Matthew decided he needed to record it for us so that we could also learn from it. Yeah, it seems that he would have at least known... and That's always a tricky thing when you talk about Christ, right? Because he's, he's God and man. So he can say, I don't know when I'm coming back. He can say to the woman in the crowd, who touched me? But then as God, he knows all things, right? So there's a great mystery to that. But it seems that he, in his humanity at least, would have known that they don't seem to be getting what he's saying about his death and resurrection. We know that because of how chapter 18 starts, right? He's just told them, hey, I'm going to go to the cross. You need to pick up your cross behind me and follow after me. And what do they start asking? Well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Right? They're, 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 mis, they're misguided. But before we're too hard on them, remember, they're representative of us. So we're supposed to be seeing ourselves in the disciples. Okay? We're, they're the character that we're most like. And uh, they make the same kind of mistakes that we make, right? Any other questions there? So we're going to get now to chapter 18. This is going to be the fourth of the major discourses. And we're back. I flipped the pages back. So we're on page 68 now. So, like all of the others, it starts out with giving a particular saying. At this time, it's going to be the disciples coming to Jesus. So, there doesn't seem to be a a large crowd of onlookers like there is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is specifically for the disciples. And it ends with the same phrase, when Jesus had finished, like we've seen in all the other ones. So, let's kind of tackle this discourse like we've done the other ones. Let's... Let's first think about the setting and the reason for why Jesus gave it. The disciples seem to have forgotten that Jesus had been predicting his death. Instead, they were focused on their own position in his future kingdom. The disciples know that there will be distinctions in Christ's kingdom. And I point you here back to chapter 5, verse 19. So they're not completely off base. It does seem like when we do finally enter Jesus' kingdom that there will be maybe some differences of roles and reward. But just recent and I say and, just recently, three of them had been singled out for a privilege. So maybe that's in the back of their mind too, right? Like maybe some of us are really the favorites because three of us got to go up on the mountain with Jesus. So it's with all these things maybe swirling around in their minds, that the disciples ask, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So then, what's the theme? What's the the theme that ties everything that he's about to say in chapter 18? Because I think chapter 18 is a cohesive discourse. Well, it starts out with this little parable. Jesus uses a child as an acted out parable. So, it's a parable with an object lesson, which in this case is is a child. And he uses the child to answer the disciples' question. The child, it could have been anyone from an infant to a teenager, the the word that Matthew uses, it's its a little ambiguous, so we don't know for sure how old this child was. Some have suggested possibly it's its Peter's child, because it looks like they might be in Peter's house. So that's a possibility. Christ then says, unless you change, I'll put this up here on the screen because this is a significant verse. He says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's That's strong language. It's absolutely never. Nobody who hasn't gone through this change that he's talking about will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he doesn't say become children. He says you must become like children. That's an important little word there. So then we have to stop and think, okay, what is the characteristic of this child that Jesus is using as an illustration that we would need to characterize our lives in order to enter the kingdom? You see how that would work? And I think he actually answers that for us, right? Because he puts it parallel with the lowly position. You see that? So the child has a lowly position. Don't don't think about children the way we think about children today. Children today we think of as cute. We use them in television commercials. Children have all kinds of rights and privileges. They get all kinds of toys. We like children. In their culture, it was a little bit different. Children had no rights. Children were supposed to be seen and not heard. Children weren't given great gifts. Children would have been looked down upon. Now, Jesus, I don't think, has that exact same view. We're going to see a little bit later in the story, Jesus shows great love towards children, but he knows that he can use a child in a gentle, loving way to still make a point, that they're humble. They have nothing to offer, right? They have no advantages or privileges. The disciples are all thinking about how are we going to get ahead, and he's saying no. The people who are great in the kingdom are people who are humble, people who are not looking out for themselves. So I think Turner is right in this long paragraph that I give you there that the childlike character trait that is foremost in this simile is becoming like a, in becoming like a child is humility. So point two, if one is not humble, one will not enter the kingdom. However, a humble person will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Turner there talks about the implications that that has for our conversion. I think that's definitely true, right? It's only a humble person who's genuinely converted. And this is going to come up again when Jesus again uses a child for an illustration. But I think here the focus is primarily on how we're supposed to view ourselves, right? How we're supposed to view ourselves in relationship to others. Our life together in this new community that we call a church isn't about us and getting ahead. It's about the fact that we've been given a gift along with other people, and we all together as a group want to arrive safely in Jesus' kingdom. There are all kinds of little family words that are used. So I say there at the top of page 69, if you go through the discourse, Christ's followers are pictured as children. They're called little ones. They're called brothers, and they're called fellow slaves. So when you think little ones, don't think like immature Christians or new Christians. That would be borrowing like an illustration from Paul. Paul uses that kind of language, you know, babes in Christ. But Matthew isn't using it that way. And Jesus, when he's teaching, we're all little ones. So from his perspective as our king, we're all the little ones, right? He's flattening us all out, pointing out what we all have in common. It's not about immature Christians It's about a family. So this discourse also describes a new community. So this is going to be the the second and last time that the word church gets used. So in this discourse, Jesus explains what living as humble followers in this new community looks like. Instead of trying to get ahead, we should view ourselves as God's children who must depend on him. And other disciples as brothers who must be treated carefully and lovingly as God treats them. An underlying presupposition, so it never just comes out and says this, it just assumes that not everyone who attaches themselves to the church will just stay there. There will always be the danger of people starting to drift away, whether that's the, as it says in, in Matthew 13, it's the cares of this world, it's tribulations and trials, it's false teaching, there will always be things that will be pulling at our fellow church members to get them to wander off. So however, I say there, the other members, we should all have a no man left behind mentality, right? Like we're all Marines or something, right? We should have that mentality. No one gets left behind on the battlefield, right? If we see someone that's hurting, someone that's wandering off, we should grab a hold of them and pull them along with us. Not literally, but... With that same urgency, God is not willing that any of his little ones be lost, and he uses other little ones to ensure that this does not occur. Those who fail to show this love for other community members, especially if you didn't want to forgive their failures, you would yourself be shut out of the kingdom. Because if you were demonstrating that kind of lack of love for your fellow Christian, it would show then that you weren't truly born again yourself. So that in a nutshell, I think that's what he's talking about in the discourse. All right, now I'll try to just walk through it little by little and see how he does that. So the structure, that's kind of a boring section to read, but you have a paragraph there where I talk about how the paragraphs are broken up. So it's a paragraph about paragraphs, so I won't read it. Number one, Causing believers to stumble. Verses five through nine. A disciple of Jesus must welcome all who have humbled themselves and repent in faith. Our attitude w- should be to welcome them as if they're Christ. Let me read verse five for us. Um, I'll go back one verse. So it says, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So if you have a desire to do things that are pleasing to our Lord, do things that show your love to him, if you've ever wished that he was here physically and you could do something for him to show him how much you love him, then he's saying just do it for one of his family members. If you do it for one of his family members, you have done it for him. That's a great truth, isn't it? We're not only to receive them into fellowship, but we're to be careful not to do anything to cause them to stumble. So verses 6 through 9, it's a famous passage there where he talks about the millstone, right? Causing a believer to stumble is not just causing them to be offended. It's not just causing them to be a little bit upset with you. When Jesus talks about causing someone to stumble, he's talking about causing them to abandon the faith. That we can actually be so uncareful with our fellow church members that we could cause them to actually just give up on this whole thing called the church altogether. And that would be a very serious thing to do. And Jesus is going to have a stern warning for it. Yes. Yeah, it's it's ultimately going to be only a non-believer who would stumble. But the problem is, from our perspective, is we won't always know the difference. You know, when we accept people into membership here at our church, here at this church and in my church, you know, we, we take their profession of faith, their desire to be baptized, you know, we maybe depending on the church, we might have a class or something that they go through. There's steps that we take in order to assure ourselves that their profession is genuine but ultimately we don't know and so when they start to wander off uh, we're still treating them like a brother as long as we can right Um, but we realize that some of those if we are not careful with the way we treat them and handle them that they will inevitably or they will eventually go off so that raises a question then right well if that's, if, if that's what's inevitably going to happen, right, if they never were a believer in the first place, then why does it matter what we do? But that's the same question that we have with lots of other topics in the Bible, right? If God chooses people, why do we share the gospel and pray, right? If God knows what's going to happen, then why does it matter what I do today, the choices I make? And the scripture always puts both of those parallel with each other and points out that we still are responsible for doing things. So we're still responsible for how we maintain and cultivate church membership, even though ultimately what's going to keep someone attached to Christ is the work of the Spirit in their life. Uh, So we should never separate God's decree and His plan from the means that He uses to carry it out. And the means that He uses is us. He uses us and our efforts in order to build and, and maintain his church. So It's a good question. It's a tough question, but um, I think that's how the scriptures answer it. Yes? Could stumble be also backsliding?
1: You know, if we make our friend backslide because we're rude or something?
0: Yeah, it would be at least a step. So I think the word that he uses for stumble, if you look at other places it's used... It's talking about a fall that you don't get up from. It's it's completely abandoning the faith. But that doesn't we know from personal experience that doesn't happen overnight. That usually happens in small steps. People just start gradually drifting away. So when we see people starting to gradually drift away, then we should go out and reach them and grab a hold of them so that they don't stumble. And that's where he goes into then the, the parable about the, the sheep, right? That's the whole point of his lost sheep parable. So turning the page then, um, let see, where do I have this? I might, yeah, it's going to be uh, verses 10 through 14, the parable of the wandering sheep. Uh, there's two additional reasons why we should treat fellow believers with love and kindness. So, Remember, there's an earlier, I may have lost my place and forgotten where I said this. It's actually on page 71.b. I talk about how in Luke's gospel, we have a parable about the lost sheep. And remember, it's parallel to the lost coin. And the whole point of that parable is evangelism. So there's, there's people out in the world that you should go and find with the gospel. Jesus uses a very similar parable here, but with a different point. Here, in the context, the point isn't about evangelism. It's about people starting to drift away from the assembly. And we should go after them like a man would go after his valuable sheep that he doesn't want to see lost. So first of all, as he starts out here, he, again, he calls us God's little ones. Then he says something startling. So look at, look at verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So, again, that's talking about your attitude towards your fellow church members. We're not supposed to despise them. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Well, that's a tricky one, right? So, we're supposed to be very careful and loving with how we treat our fellow church members because they have an angel who sees the face of God in heaven. So, what does that mean? Well, I give you three options there. So, three good options that Christians through the centuries have argued for. Sometimes I get this question. This comes up especially when you get into discussions about do we have a guardian angel or that type of discussion. So first of all, some people think it's a reference to the spirit of deceased believers who are already in God's presence. So there the idea would be, hey, you should treat your fellow church members carefully Because they're part of a larger group that includes people who are already in God's presence, who are seeing God's face. So logically that makes sense. I'm not sure it's my favorite interpretation though. I think the big issue here is there's no other clear place where the word angel gets used for our human spirits. This would be the only place in the whole Bible that the word gets used that way. So I find that a little bit unlikely. Number two, some people think it's a reference to guardian angels. And this is probably actually the the majority view. However, there's no other biblical passage that clearly teaches the idea of a guardian angel. At least, I don't think there's any passage that clearly says that God attaches one angel to each one of us, like in kind of a buddy system, which is how we kind of popularly think about it. I am sympathetic to the idea, though, that there are specific angels that protect us as a body, as congregations. It would make sense, because in the Old Testament, I talk about this a little bit in one of the footnotes, we know that there were angels who, for example, protected the people of Israel. So the people of Israel had angels who protect them. So if we are the people of God in this dispensation, if there's a sense in which we're parallel to the people of God in the Old Testament, it would make sense that God would use some of his powerful created beings in order to serve us and protect us. And we do have a couple places in the New Testament that maybe hint that way. Another suggestion here, it's a reference to angels who represent believers before God or make God aware of the believer's situation. So messengers who are coming into God's presence and telling him about us, reporting on us, representing us some people think that this is what's going on with the 24 elders there in the book of revelation anyway i gave you the options and then i'm going to just wrap it all up with that bold point at the top of page 71 in any case because i'm not sure and i don't know if we'll ever be sure at least i won't be sure the point is that god is aware of and cares deeply about what is happening to his children so there are these spiritual beings that God created. Remember, they are created beings. You know, we, ne- we should never start thinking of them so highly that they become on the same plane in our mind as God. They're, they're creatures, just like we are, but they are powerful creatures, amazing creatures, creatures who can do things that we can't do. And in some sense, that's a little cryptic to us, they have an attachment to us, They've been assigned to us. They minister for us. And Matthew's point as he records Jesus' words is that it reminds us of how special we are to God, right? That our specialness doesn't come from our power because if he only cared for the powerful ones, then we're lower than the angels, right? But we actually, though we were made lower than the angels, we are the ones who are crowned to be the rulers of this world. You know Jesus didn't become an angel in order to be our king he became a man and so God's love and his care for his people is illustrated by his use of angels in some way so that's another reminder to us hey be very careful with how you deal with fellow church members because you all are part of a special family that means a whole lot to our God okay I think that's a good place to stop there before we get to verse 15. Any any final questions? Yes. I, I would think a lot of this applies today to
1: some of these pastors that, uh, I've been hearing stuff about uh, ministering in Atlanta, well-known. You yeah. That's basically teaching here is pretty close
0: to it. Yeah. And then we have Rob Lowe, and hmm yeah. so the the point was that this this would apply to preachers at churches who have been given the responsibility to care for a congregation and they're actually leading them astray through false teaching so i kind of skimmed over it but remember it's this large millstone so they had two kinds of millstones one was the little one that a woman and maybe her daughter the two of them could, t- could together could grind uh, flower so Jesus is going to talk about that kind of millstone in chapter 24 one woman gets taken the other one gets left behind but here Matthew uses a different word it's the millstone that a donkey had to pull so it's this giant stone and the picture is you would have a giant stone put around your neck and then you'd be thrown into the ocean that's horrible right but Jesus's point is that if you lead a professing Christian astray what would happen to you, you would rather choose the millstone. That the death with the millstone in the ocean, if you were given the choice, would be the one that you would pick. I mean, that's, that's a serious thing, right? So the, the point there of that, of that saying from our Lord is be very careful in how you interact with your fellow believers and do whatever is in your power to get them safely to the kingdom. Keep them Attached to Christ, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Any other thoughts or questions? Yes.
1: What's on the uh, board up here? Uh, Matthew 18. Uh, going to John chapter 17, Jesus identifies the 11 of the disciples as definitely being saved, and of course, Judas is not being. Yeah. There, in Matthew 18, that almost seems to say at that point in time they were not saved. But unless you change become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I. That's, I mean, that's. Hmm. that seems like he's saying, you know, that you, <laughs> you need, you yet need to repent. You truly repent. But I,
0: that,
1: that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit in with this.
0: No, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit because we've already had Peter making a confession and yeah. Jesus saying that he only could confess that because it's been revealed to him. So I think here this is meant to be like a proverbial saying. Okay. So it's a general truth that applies to all people.
1: So it's the you it, is just out there,
0: every day. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's a proverbial sense where it applies to anyone. Okay. So unless any of us change and become like little children and we ultimately know this is a change that we would call the new birth, it's a change that's brought about by the Spirit, then any of us, whoever it is, any of us, would not be able to enter the kingdom. All right. well thank you very much, Lord willing, I will see you next week.